You're listening to Building a Better Brand, and I'm your host, Tony Triumph, founder of The Triumphant Group. And I'm here to share the stories behind my friends who are industry innovators, my buddies who are movers and shakers, as well as my fellow clients, colleagues, and the go-getters of today that have helped both big and little brands be a big success. Whether you're a big brand, a little brand, an indie brand, or run a multi-million dollar company, I'd love for you to listen up. Because we're here to empower you through our world of tips and tools to help you build a better brand. Welcome to our world. Our next guest on Building a Better Brand is Dr. Marcus Collins, an award-winning marketer and cultural translator. He is the former head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, and one foot in the world of academia as a marketing professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Prior to his advertising tenor, Marcus began his career in music and tech with a startup he co-founded before working on iTunes and Nike Sport Music Initiatives at Apple and running digital strategy for the one and only Beyonce. He is a recipient of Ad Ages 40 Under 40 Award and an inductee into the American Advertising Federation's Advertising Hall of Achievement. His strategies and creative contributions have led to the launch and success of Google's Real Tone Technology, the Made in America Music Festival, the Brooklyn Nets, and State Farms' Cliff Paul campaign, among others. Marcus's work centers squarely on the impact of culture and the power that comes from having great cultural proximity. His best-selling book, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be, examines the influence of culture on consumption and unpacks how everyone from marketers to activists can leverage culture to get people to take action. We'll unpack this plus so much more on today's episode of Building a Better Brand. Listen up, y'all. What's going on, man? I'm doing really well, man. Glad to be here. Welcome to Building a Better Brand. This is the place to be. What better place to be with this amazing view? Damn, this view is (laughs) unbelievable. And what what better of a guest? I mean, you, your, your book for the culture, you're talking about brand culture, you're talking about society. It's talking about all things that have to do with building your best, not only brand, but also identity as it pertains to how you integrate into society. You have an amazing resume from Beyonce. I know you worked with her dad, Matthew Knowles. I mean, now you're at Wyden and Kennedy. Just talk to us, man. Like, (laughs) let's unpack this stellar of a resume. You know, I'm on your LinkedIn page now and it just goes down and down and down. (laughs) Now published author. Talk to us about how Dr. First of all, let me put some respect on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the re- see, I told you the resume just keeps yeah. going. It's a lot to unpack here. So let's talk about the beginning stages, yeah. the foundational areas that have gotten Dr. Marcus Collins to where he is today. Well, thank you. First of all, I really appreciate that. I feel like what's gotten me here has been a very long and winding road that makes a lot of sense sort of looking in the rearview mirror, but going forward probably didn't as much. So I'm from Detroit, born and raised. I always start that way because I'm a product of the city and I did well in math and science and had a pension for math and science. And if you're black, you're from Detroit, you do well in math and science, you become an engineer. So that's what I studied. Yeah, so I went into engineering and realized I didn't love it despite my parents wanting me to do that. I remember after my freshman year, I came home and said, 
And mom and dad, I don't think I want to be an engineer. My mother, who's an academic, says, wait until you get into your major. You'll love it. And I trust my mom. So I go, okay, cool. All right. Second year comes around. I go, oh, I definitely don't want to be an engineer. And then I took some music theory courses just to offset my terrible GPA. And in doing so, I fell in love with major seven. And I was like, I want to write music. I want to be a songwriter. So I went home that summer after sophomore year and said, mom and dad, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And they, in so much excitement, say, great, tell us. I go, I want to be a songwriter. They go, oh, no, you don't. Oh, you don't. Like, you must be smoking crack. You're going to be a songwriter. So we fought it out and ended up going back to school that after the summer to finish my engineering degree. I spent all my time in the recording studio. So once I graduated, I went into the music business and I was writing love songs for a living. I wasn't successful. I did some work with John B. I did some work with Miss Dynamite and D12 from Detroit, particularly Bizarre from D12, but nothing like really broke. I started a company with a guy who's another ex-engineer from Michigan who didn't want to do engineering. He took care of all the business side. I did all the production work. And we were helping brands partner with up-and-coming artists as a way to, to interact with music without spending a lot of money. And that was going well until it wasn't because the bottom dropped out of the music industry around 2006. And our business started to unwind very quickly. A nice way of putting it. Things weren't working well. So we said one of us should probably go to business school to figure out what's going on. So I went to business school to study marketing, understanding this disruption that was happening in marketing that we know is digital. And he went to go work for a junior senator from Chicago who was running for president named Barack Obama. Yeah, he worked out pretty well for him. (laughs) So I went to business school studying marketing and ended up getting a gig at Apple doing partner marketing iTunes, which was amazing. And around that time- And they were just starting to get big, right? Yeah, they were like, this is like 2008. So like Apple is Apple. The iPhone launched by this point, they are dominating the music industry. They essentially changed the music industry, right? Completely disrupted it. And the App Store launched that summer. It was like Apple was the place to be. Steve Jobs is still there. Apple is the place to be. And I worked there for the, a year while I was finishing my, my MBA at Michigan. And I ended up moving to New York, met Matthew Knowles. And he goes, wait a minute. You were an engineer, started a music company, you have an MBA, you work at Apple, and you're black, fam, you don't exist. You're a unicorn. <laughs> How did you meet him? What so was that process like? Happenstance, happenstance. I'm at Apple, finish up my degree, and right in the middle of a recession, and Apple is going through some restructuring, like all companies were. And my boss basically said, look, there's no space for you on our team anymore, but there's opportunity at on mobile me. You probably don't remember Mobile Me because it was their cloud service that was a failure. Okay. By Apple. Apple started this. Yeah, it was Apple's cloud service. Before it became iCloud, it was Mobile Me, and it was not great. And I was like, I'm a music guy. I don't want to go into mobile uh, cloud like that. I don't want that. He's like, that's all we got. So I decided to take my chances here in New York. So I came to New York with Nikes on my feet and two bags trying to figure it out. And that was beating the bushes, trying to meet everyone. I had meetings with like Kadar Massenberg, who was the president of Motown for a long time, who they say coined the phrase Neo Soul, Russell Simmons, Lior Cohen, Kevin Lyles. Like I was meeting everyone and nothing was happening. That's the New and York life. It's the New York life. It's exactly. York it life. is the New York life. It is the story of New York. And so my then girlfriend, now wife, her cousin worked at Ticketmaster. And she said, hey, you know, we used to do work with Beyonce's people. I can send your resume over. And I go, sure, fine, whatever, fine. Like another thing that probably won't work out, but whatever. So she sends the resume over. And of course, the person who who ran digital there no longer worked there. 
So we get a bounce back message saying, so-and-so doesn't work here anymore. But the email got forwarded to the general manager of Music World. This is the management company and record label for Beyonce. The general manager sees my resume and goes, okay, like he doesn't work here anymore, but we love to meet Marcus. And at this time, I'm like, bet, cool, let's do it. Like, let's arrange a time to do it. And they're like, can you come in today? And like, I got on jeans, flip-flops, and a polo shirt. And I'm like, I can't, I don't know exactly. So what I'm going to do, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this, but I want to make sure these guys know that I mean business. So I went to H&M, bought a suit off the rack, printed up my resume, had it bounded the whole, the whole nine. And I show up to what I thought was going to be like a casual, let's meet. It was actually a round table interview happening. So thankfully, in fact, I actually kept that suit, by the way. So that meeting went well. And so the lore goes that the general manager, her name is Liz Bacora, she sends a note to Matthew. You go, hey, Matthew, we met this guy who was an engineer. He works in music. He started a company. He got his MBA. He just left Apple. And Matthew, like, he's black. And Matthew goes, yeah, right. This guy is not real. She's like, no, we met him. He's awesome. And he's like, tell him to come to Houston. I want to meet him. So I flew to Houston, spent some time with Matthew. And then Matthew's like, all right, you know, let, let me think about it. And then he, he gives me an offer. Or he tells me to come back. And he's like, all right, I'm going to give you an offer, but you got to live in Houston for a year. And I was like, I'm not living in Houston for a year, dog. Like, I, just, I didn't leave Michigan to come to New York to live in Houston. And so at this time, he's still managing Beyonce. Oh, yeah. That's this a- is firmly 2009. This is September 2009. Prime Sasha Fierce days. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Like, if I were a boy and single ladies had just launched a year prior. So I started, when I got the offer, I started maybe like a week or so after Halo dropped. Right? So like, it's like full out. I am Sasha Fierce. Amazing time to be in the Beyonce business. But it worked out that I uh, ran digital strategy for her at a time where the music industry didn't really understand the social space. It was essentially another broadcast vehicle for them. There was television, there was print, there was out of home, and we're just going to tell them, buy the album, buy the record. But it wasn't an understanding about building community, about fostering community, rather. And what I realized is that people outside the music industry had a better understanding of this. And I felt like the smartest person in the room when it came to this space but I was not the smartest person. So I figured I was in the wrong room because people had a better understanding of the space than than I did. Not only that, I started to question myself, like, was I any good? Because everything I touched was successful. And that's when you know you're moving, when you start to question how good you are. Exactly. So I was like, am I any good? Or is this just because I've worked with Beyonce? And let's be honest, it's because I worked with Beyonce. She was going to win regardless. I was a small brick in her massive edifice. Well, those are the bricks that make the big building like I, that. <laughs> I'd like to think that, but like she was going to do just Every brick that. matters. Amen. Okay. That's, I'll take that. I'll Every take brick that. matters. Um, so I figured that I wanted to test myself. I wanted to prove myself to see if I was any good. So I decided to go into the advertising industry because I felt like advertising was doing a better job of breaking new artists. I saw it with Apple and, and, and iPod. We saw it with like Mountain Dew Green Label Sound. Like, Brands were just doing a better job of leveraging the technology, but also leveraging the power of music in ways that record labels weren't. It was like advertising the way they're going to do it. So I went to work with a full service, a full service, pure play social agency called Big Fuel. And they were the biggest social media agency at the time in the country. They had just won all of General Motors business. And it was an ungodly sum of money. And I got to learn social, like it was like boot camp for social, which was great. And while I was there, I met Steve Stout, 
I was just about to ask. I yeah. know you were at translation at some yes. point. So I met Steve Stout. Now, Steve Stout, here's a guy in my mind that is the prototype for me. He was a music executive who went into advertising and became an advertising executive. And he paired all the things, all the mechanisms that makes music so compelling, has a gravitational pull to it, and leverage that thinking over to brands and marketing communications. And he built an agency called Translation with his silent partners, Jay-Z and Jimmy Iovine. And also wrote an amazing book. Tammy for Tammy America, exactly, which I helped launch, actually. I was going to say, because I, I feel like your book, and we'll talk more about this in a bit, but like I feel like your book is kind of like the new age version of Tanning of America. That's fair. I mean, I am a stout pupil. Like I learned from the, the, the school of stout. And I was grateful for to do that. So stout reaches out to me. Post working with Matthew or while you're this working This is while with I'm at this uh, agency called Big Fuel. So he reaches out and says, you know, I'm trying to build a social practice. Um, and I want to take social and lateralize it across all the, the business we have in the building. And he's like, I don't know anyone else who understands this space like you do. And I go, sign me up for that. So I go to translation to run social, to build a social practice there and grow the agency in that way. And I really cut my teeth there. Like I became like a hundred X the marketer that I was because the people I were working with were unbelievable. The talent was crazy. And the perspective was just so sharp is that brands who lead culture are more successful than those who follow. And I was like, yeah, it just made, it, it seems so obvious once it was said out loud and I was go, yeah, absolutely. But it's not rocket science to the brands. That's right. I have that challenge as a, as a brand person myself, uh, running an agency, working with big businesses, it is so easy for them to convince you to work for them and go with the grain. And so, you know, I, I love that you said that, but it's not common sense at agencies. Right. It's, it's unconventional, even though it's so obvious, right? And this, I think, is a challenge with our industry, our discipline as marketers. Business people at writ large, it's like we take off our human hat when we walk into the office as if those two things can't exist. They can't coexist. Like I tell my clients, particularly I tell my students, that Bruce Wayne and Batman are the same people. They just wear different outfits, different contexts, different outfits, but they're the same people. And we have to be also to keep our human hat on. And though we know the impact of culture on our day-to-day -day lives, whether we, are, we can speak about it uh, saliently or not, we at least know it. We feel it. But that wasn't happening in the world of marketing, at least not that time. Right. Would you call that adaptation with that analogy of Bruce Wayne and Batman being the same person? Sure. I would say that's like, that's a matter of, yeah, adaptive context. In this context, I behave this way. In this context, I behave an another way. But you're still the same foundational person. You are the same person. Exactly. So when you come into the room, though you're a billionaire, Bruce Wayne, you know what's happening on the streets of Gotham. So you can talk about both of them. Those two things can happen at the same time. And I think that we, for marketers, we don't do that very well, right? Like think, think of this, like use this as a thought exercise that I write about in the book. You know, we talk about people in these archetypal boxes and we think that that describes people well and they don't. We use demographics to do that, right? So meet Deborah. Deborah drives a minivan. Does Deborah have kids? Possibly. Do your kids play a sport? Yes. Yeah, what sport? Soccer. Yeah, where does she live? Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what we do. We, I give you one data point about Deborah, and you map out her entire life. That's what we do for almost everyone. We put them in boxes. Gen Z, millennials, multicultural youth. Black people. All black people do something fill in the blank racist. Like, this is what we do. 
right? Not because it's accurate, but because it's easy. And while we wouldn't want to put ourselves in a box, we go, no, I'm not like this stereotypical person, but that's how we think about other people. And therefore, when we conceive of marketing concepts that are based in this erroneous description of people, we wonder why the marketing doesn't work. We wonder why people don't take action because we don't think about people as human beings. We think about them as these machines that eat messages and crap cash. It's not real. But when we look at them and the world through a cultural lens, we get much more human. And my time at translation really taught me how to think that way. And we didn't, have the, we didn't describe it in that kind of language, but we talked about people based on their culture. Like what's, what is going on in their cultural contexts? And it was there that I launched the Cliff Paul campaign for State Farm, launched the Brooklyn Nets, moved them from New Jersey to Brooklyn, launched the Maine American Music Festival for Budweiser in Philadelphia, which is like the top four festivals of, and, and it's been going on for over 10 years. Like it's just massive impact. And while I was doing this, working in the world of translation, I realized that we use the word culture a lot, get our ideas out in the culture, what's happening in culture, our work should be informed by culture, 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 culture. But if you ask five people to define culture, you get 30 different answers. That's problematic. Okay. Yes, it is. Because if we can't describe a thing concretely, how do we ever operationalize it? How do we ever use it? Make it, how do you measure the impact? Exactly. So we can't define it. So we don't even know the mechanisms that make it work, the underlying physics that govern it. And then we can't, therefore, to your point, measure it. So now we find ourselves looking for abstractions and esoteric language to describe a thing that we all experience. And which is, I mean, it's a hard thing to do. Like, it's like explaining water to a fish. Culture is all around us and it's in everything that we do. performative allyship. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Which we saw a lot of. And we did those things. years ago. Well, they did those things. They thought that was what they were supposed to do. And that's what culture is, by and large. Like the early scholars in sociology, like, Durkheim, Marx, Weber, founding father of sociology, Durkheim in particular, talked about culture as this system of symbols, beliefs, and norms that demarcate who people are and what people like them want to do. The conventions and expectations of people like us, right? And because of how we self-identify, there are a set of expectations and conventions that we do, right? And when we saw things like performative allyship, People started doing it because people started doing it, right? We are, as Tard would say, society is all imitation. Like we're just imitating people like ourselves. And the better we understand those mechanisms of culture, the beliefs that we hold, the artifacts that have meaning, the behaviors that are normative, and the language that we use, the better we'll understand who people are and how they operate and see the world and therefore show up in the world. And what we realize is that there's no force, external force, more influential to human behavior than culture, full stop. And for marketers, that is massively important. So how do marketers ensure that they are showing up for the culture, embracing the culture, and making sure the culture is not just this new buzzy word that everybody's just catching on to, and it leads them down that pathway of performative allyship yeah. because they're, they're, there's becoming, I mean, we're seeing a lot of pushback. No matter what side of the spectrum you're on, no matter what your political party is, we're seeing people from both sides. I mean, I had a family member who's very pro, you know, culture and for the people and for brown people and BIPOC people and everything in between. Sometimes even saying like, hey, is this too much? Like, how do we make it so that it's not even like performative on our part, where we make everything just what we want it to be? Like, how do we make it 
truly for the culture and maybe a little touch of all cultures. Your last point is the point. Whose culture? Right. There are many, 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 many cultures. Right. And because there's many, 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 many cultures, there are many, many conventions and expectations that govern these people. And it's because of our cultural subscription that we see the world the way we do. We make meaning through these cultural frames. For instance, for some, a cow is leather. For others, it's a deity. And for some, it's dinner. But which one is it? It's all three, depending on who you're talking to. Not these boxes that we put them in, not millennials or Gen Zs, but people who subscribe to a certain cultural characteristics, right? Conventions and expectations, beliefs, norms, artifacts, and, and language. These things make up what people like us do. And because of how we self-identify, we therefore behave in the world accordingly. So for marketers to be a part of culture, to do it for the culture, they must first identify, well, for whom's culture? are we trying to engage? And that requires first looking at people as real life human beings, not as these demographic boxes that we put them in. And then once we say, okay, all right, these people, this isn't about Deborah who drives a minivan. This isn't, you know, all women love to shop. This isn't, you know, whatever demographic box label we want to put on people. We're going to look at this particular culture. Let's say we're going to look, we want to talk to surfers. There's a community of people and within this collective of people, not only do they do this activity that we know of surfing, there are beliefs, artifacts, language, and behavior that's normative for them. So if we want to talk to or engage with the surfer community and their cultural characteristics, we must first identify, well, what are those characteristics? Where are they? Right? And that requires a tremendous amount of intimacy, just closeness that we typically don't have. Right? We have tons of data, reams and reams and reams of data. But even though we have more data on people than ever before, we don't know people as well as we have data on them. Like exponential growth in data acquisition, a marginal increase in insight extraction. Marketers still say, I don't know my customer. I'm sure you get that all the time from your clients. I don't know my customer. Help me understand my, my people. And though we have information on them, we don't know them because we mistake information for intimacy. I have information, so I must know them. Those two things aren't the same. And in your work, how do you help your clients unpack that intimacy? We use ethnographic research methods. I mean, that's how the early scholars study culture. In fact, these guys looked at religion as a way to observe people take on their cultural practices. So we immerse ourselves in their cultural contexts. Like if we want to know about cosplayers, we go to Comic-Con. Right? If we want to know uh, about basketball fans, you know, we'll go to AAU games or you know, we go where they are and we live their lives. We eat what they, where they eat. We hang out where they hang out. We, we become one of them. That is, we set aside our ethnocentric lenses that we use to see the world and adopt other people's lenses to make meaning of how they see the world. Right? Culture in this way is a meaning-making system. It's yes. the way by which we translate the world. And the only way we know that is to sort of not only walk a mile in someone's shoes, but see the world through their lenses. So we do that in a physical way, a physical ethnography, or we do it in an online ethnography, which most of my research on the academic side sits, it's called a netnography, where we immerse ourselves in the social platforms where these people reside. I use Reddit quite often. And I observe people in these communities negotiate and construct meaning. And just talk. Exactly. Their discourse is how we decide what's acceptable, right? If, if your friend was like, yo, 
I, I listened to Kanye last night. His music was bopping. You go, do you still listen to Kanye? What are you doing? That negotiation, that conversation is a way by which we decide what's acceptable for us. Because if you go, I lightweight listen to Kanye too, but I don't tell nobody. Now we are establishing norms for people, for us, for our community that like, you can listen to Kanye West, but don't tell nobody. You can do it in private, but don't talk about it out loud. Right? But if your friend says, I still listen to Kanye, and you go, fam, I can't rock with you, dude. Like, you way foul. That person will likely stop listening or definitely won't tell you about it to stay in good standings with you. Right. So these cultural characteristics that are negotiated and constructed through our discourse, they're not just things that we abide by. They're the covalent bonds that connect us to our people, uh-huh. our community. The culture becomes the governing operating system of people like us. And brands benefit from this when they're able to contribute or participate in the discourse. In the conversation. Exactly. That was my follow-up question. Exactly. It's like, you know, how, how do, so instead of, and what I'm hearing and, and I agree with is what, I, you know, instead of leading the conversation, we join the conversation. Right. Yeah. And I would say, my friend Eric Holgren puts it this way, when it comes to participating, or coming and being a part of culture, it's like, it's like a car. You can lead it by contributing new conventions, new artifacts, new behaviors, new language. You can participate in by being a part of the conversation. Oh, you're talking about this? Me too. Or you can follow it, which is like sucking tailpipe. No one wants to suck tailpipe. That's the worst. Participating is a good thing, but the ones who lead culture are the ones who are more successful than those who follow. The ones who are contributing new language, new lexicon, new behaviors, new artifacts, those are the ones that win. Think about uh, performative acts of allyship when everyone was changing their square to black after the execution of George Floyd. Beats by Dre did something completely different. They made a film called You Love Me. You love my culture, but did you really love me? That contribution, that cultural product wasn't just con- jumping in and participating in the conversation. They were creating new language. They were contributing new new catalyst new stimuli exactly new to, stimuli i to, like to that move yeah the discourse in another place like that's unbelievably powerful inspiration exactly yeah. people shared that thing as a way of communicating their, their thoughts exactly and that instead of sucking tailpipe and putting up right. a black square that's right exactly you know? instead of sucking tailpipe i'm trying to follow <laughs> or even saying like hey you know we see the world the way you do and contribute to the discourse which is a good thing they were leading the discourse and people were using that, their works as cultural production, right? And, and I think about this system of systems that we call culture, you know, it ladders up to cultural production, right? It's grounded in our identity, how I self-identify, right? I'm a Collins, I'm a Michigan Wolverine, or I'm a Christian, right? So because of who I am, I hold a set of ideas and beliefs, right? Truths that I hold about the world. And I see the world through those lenses, Right? And because I see the world a certain way, I dress a certain way, I behave a certain way, and I speak a certain way. Right? I have a shared way of life of people like me. And I express my cultural subscription through cultural product. The literature that I read, the music I listen to, the television I watch, the film that I take in, the theater I go to, the dance that I, that I see, and the brands and branded products that I consume. Right? So I grew up watching Spike Lee movies, listening to hip hop. Watching Martin. Watching Martin. I was reading something the other day um, on one of your tapes. I think you did a post on Instagram. You were talking about 
what was the terminology you used? Yeah, people were like, it's giving Martin it's giving vibes. Martin, it's, it's giving Martin. It's giving Spike, Spike Lee, Lee vibes. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. giving culture that resonates with you. That's right. And, that's, and that was actually the purpose of the book, that I wanted the book as an artifact to be an expression of my cultural subscription. This was meant to be a reflection of the cultural product I grew up on, right? And because I grew up on Spike Lee, I have a certain point of view about race relations in this country, informed by Spike Lee movies. Because I grew up on hip hop, my aesthetic of what's cool is informed by hip hop. Because, you know, I grew up on Martin, the things that are funny to me are through that particular lens, right? Like this cultural product that we take in become ways by which we express who we are in the world, but also reflect who we are. And brands that contribute to culture, it's not just an ad that communicates the value proposition. They are transcendent to this cultural product that people use to express who they are in the world. That's unbelievably powerful, especially for brands. Because what are brands after all? Like this is like square in your space, right? Brands are essentially vessels of meaning, right? They're identifiable signifiers. I see it. I know it, that mark, or, you know, I know that color. When I come home with a box that's turquoise, my wife goes, you love me so much because she knows that that box is probably Tiffany's, right? We know the silhouette of a Coke bottle. her, Her ideals. Exactly. Exactly. So the brand is a vessel of meaning. It's an identifiable signifier that means something. That meaning conjures up thoughts and feelings. I like the way you just, dis- you laid out the definition of brand because a lot of people have asked this question. Like, That's what right. is a brand? <laughs> That's right. It's very subjective for one, but it's also, you know, it, it, it sums up, it's, it's pretty much what you just said, but everybody has a different way of saying that. And because we have different ways of saying it, operating together becomes a challenge. That's why language is so important. Language is unifying. Like in academia, we talk about or the words we use as constructs. They're constructions because we're able to operationalize them, we're able to, to, to use them. So if brands are these vessels of meaning that conjure up thoughts and feelings, well, what dictates meaning? Culture. It's the meaning-making, the realized meaning-making system. So when we see a brand mark, or we see any iconography, we see anything in the world, I mean, everything around us is inherently meaningless. We give it meaning. For instance, what is red? Some may say red is a color. I may say red is a wavelength that activates your eyes to see a color. But if you're driving through an intersection and you see red, what is red? I mean, stop. Just like green means go or yellow means hurry up. Or red means urgent or red means sin. That's right. Exactly. Whatever. Why does it mean those things? Red doesn't inherently mean that. We have constructed red to mean that thing. Everything around us is meaningless. We give it meaning through our cultural lenses. Right? I do this exercise with clients. I say, what does this mean? And they go, means okay, right, like, uh, this, is, this means okay. But if you're in West Virginia, this probably means white supremacy. If you're on a college campus and you see some black guys do this, it red means capped off a side. If you are in, in Compton and you see some black guys do this, it probably means bloods, yeah, right? If you're in Brazil and you see some people do this, it probably means go F yourself. Same symbol, different meaning. Well, which one does it mean? All of them, depending on who you're talking to. So for marketers, these marks of ownership that we steward, that we call brands, these vessels of meaning, they're interpreted through cultural lenses. Well, whose culture? It depends. Therefore, when we're talking about participating in culture, getting out in culture, doing it for the culture, we first must say, whose culture? What are the conventions and expectations that govern said culture? 
and what does our brand mean in their minds such that we can find congruence and that people go, oh, the way the brand sees the world is a reflection, as you said, of my beliefs. So I use the brand as a way to signal my identity. Adaptation is what I'm getting from this. Exactly. Exactly. So that was a great, like you unpacked everything, (laughs) like to the core. Yeah. You know, I want to unpack a little bit more or maybe jump back a little bit just to a couple of tidbits. Queen Bee, her her tour starts, I think, today. And so you were very instrumental in some of the digital work that had that went into Sasha Fierce and just ultimately getting her brand to where it is today. What was that project like? What was some of your work like and what were some of your you know, most memorable experiences about working on? So, you know, I'd say that like, my job by and large is about creating an ecosystem for the Beyonce universe. So whatever door you came into, you found yourself going into a deeper, deeper rabbit hole of Beyonce. So if you came in through the music, you bumped into her film work with like Dreamgirls, Cadillac Records, Obsessed. Or if you came in through the movies, you bumped into our partnerships with Vizio, Nintendo, L'Oreal, Walmart. And the notion is how to make all these things play together. And so my job was to sort of create the plumbing, the digital plumbing by those things can kind of flow. I think one of the most rewarding things for me was A, to see someone just operate at such an unbelievably high level. It's just I mean, like you see the things that she's accomplished and you go, of course, because look at her. Beyond her talent, her commitment, her work ethic is just unparalleled. And to boot, she's just an amazing human being. And you would think that like, she's Beyonce and she has this kind of air to her, but she's just lovely human being. And she has to work with her, which was super awesome. I think that one of the, the broader takeaways for me as a practitioner might very well be the notion of community, a part of the gig was about you know taking her online offline fan club and bringing it online oh right and we had facebook and twitter at the time should be an easy thing to do but it was it didn't really happen the way we hoped it would and over time the team writ large had realized there was some, another community online that called themselves the beehive and they had already assembled they were already a thing like they had their own artifacts their own behaviors their, their own, own way language. of attacking is that, <laughs> that, that too but like we didn't build that. They built that themselves. And I actually left the company by this time, but the team you know, said like, we should cut bait on the thing that we were making. Let's just partner with them and make them the official fan club. And what it triggered for me was actually was a failure on, on my part is that you don't build community, you facilitate community. That there are groups of people who already believe what you believe. Your job is to connect them, to facilitate the connections between them and interestingly, the people who are part of the Beehive, like they love Beyonce's music and they looked up to her and all those things, but their connection to her was at an ideological level, not just the product she put in the world, but they saw the world similarly, as we said earlier with France, right? The thoughts and feelings that were conjured in their minds transcended the products. It was more so about belief. Beyonce has always been about women's empowerment since you know, no, 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 to Bills, to Who Runs the World Girls, Survivor, all the way to You Ain't Gonna Break My Soul. Like, she's always been an advocate for, for women's empowerment. And that perspective is what people have connected to. And interestingly, like, again, very, in my mind, at a very minimal contribution to her queendom, 
But during those days of I Am Sasha Fears, we weren't calling her Queen B. She was just Beyonce. And interestingly, and I know this is like a shocker, it's always a shocker for my students, but people used to like throw lots of shade at Beyonce. It was like lots and lots oh, of shades. Yeah, there was the Perez Hiltons of the world that were just constantly like lots of hate, lots and lots of hate. But I got a chance to witness her transcend Beyonce the artist to Queen B, the icon. Right? And that's a powerful thing. You don't get to see that happen very often where brands transcend beyond what they do to why they do it. And that for me was just such a powerful learning. I got to learn that you don't build community, you facilitate it. And I also got to see that brands, be they branded objects, branded people as icons, the brands operate at an ideological level. People tend to build community around them or facilitate community around them because they share the same point of view. They see the world similarly, which is far greater than having a sharper razor, a longer lasting battery, or shampoo that gives you body, whatever that means, right? Like it transcends all those value propositions that we typically think of as marketers that we think compel people to act, but it's really about their beliefs, the way they see the world, which of course is the foundational anchor of culture. Yeah. Oh man. I love how you always tie it back into culture. Yeah, I mean, every, it's, I mean, everything is culture. Yeah. And I know that sounds a, a bit, I don't know, maybe irresponsible, that every nail, everything is a nail and I'm a hammer. But literally, like, we think we wake up in the morning with agency over what we're going to do, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat. But these things are influenced by what people like us do. Look at the, the diets around the country. Like, the American diet is typically egg-based, unless you skip breakfast altogether, which is an American thing to do, right? But if you're in China, the diet is noodle-based for breakfast, Right. And that's just because that's what people like them do. And it's because of these subscriptions that we have to these communities that we act accordingly in an effort to promote social solidarity. So in everything we do, it's culturally driven. And I would even argue that consumption is a cultural act that we consume as a way to make our culture material. Wow. Let's see. I've never heard someone break it down. It's probably because you're a professor. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard someone break it down so analytically, intellectually savvy, you know, in terms of brand intersection, the connections, the ecosystems and how it all just plays together. I want to know your thoughts on, well, Juneteenth is coming up. Speaking of, you know, just the the fails and brand fails and just the things that some do right and some get wrong. What are your thoughts on Juneteenth and how brands are trying epically to integrate (laughs) (laughs) into the culture through Juneteenth, which is still a holiday that even a lot of Black Americans are still trying to get used to, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's, it's a perfect question because we see all of these different elements come into play. Juneteenth has always been here. We just didn't acknowledge it as a country. And to your point, even Black community, by and large, it wasn't legitimated. It wasn't something that was acceptable that all of us did that we acknowledged and participated in. It took us all collectively to say, yep, this is a thing. And the country to say, yep, we are officially observe this. So by doing such, it made it normal, mm-hmm. normalized it. The challenge to your point is that when brands try to engage in the conversation, participate, they don't understand the cultural characteristics of the predominant black culture. And therefore, when they jump in, they're following trends. They're following what they think is acceptable, which leads them to suck tailpipe. 
constantly playing themselves, right? You know, what was that that Walmart ice cream that was red? That's black, the one and green. that's literally in it's my like brain fam. as I'm asking you this question. Like, <laughs> like the kente cloth with the Juneteenth. First of all, how do you even who who told you that those two things? Was, well, the, my favorite. It was the San Jose Sharks, the <laughs> hockey team, and they had like chains, like hands with chains, and the shark was biting the chain. It's like, what are we doing right now? And then making everything, a mockery, obviously. making a mockery. Now, here's the crazy part. <laughs> not the crazy part, but here's I think the interesting part is that I believe that they were well intended. I don't believe that they were trying to offend. The challenge is that they had all the best intentions. They had none of the perspective, or as we said earlier, none of the intimacy, none of the proximity. That's what it is. Exactly. You know, I've been on those calls where it's like, and, and it's, I'm usually waiting kind of like on the sidelines. Like someone says like, hey, is, are we going to do Black History Month? It literally came from like a non-Black woman, you know, that said, hey, are we going to do Black History Month? And they said, well, no, LPR said if we haven't been doing it, we shouldn't. And I'm like, okay, that's authentic, but there's, there's space for opportunity. So I, I really think it boils down to like, you said that intimacy, like, you know, we're taking the laziness out of it and putting some, some real meat and potatoes behind the decision. And like you said, it's not bad intended. They're, they're working around data and capabilities, but I, I think there's always some space to step that up. And I mean, even that example you just made, I think is a good example. Someone well-intended say, we should be doing something for Black History Month, right? We should do a thing. And then the other person says, well, we haven't been doing it. Like, should we do it right now? And I'm like, amen, sis, like, word up. To me, the answer shouldn't be, we haven't been doing anything, so let's not do anything at all. It should be, maybe we should do something with black people all year round. Well, maybe we should just, like you said, I like the word intimacy. Let's take a deeper dive and peel back the layer. That's right. And have an intimate conversation. That's right. And not just look to me because I'm the only black person on the call. 1,000%. But like, you're the keeper of all black knowledge. Right. Let's let's have a intimate conversation. So I like that you, you point that word out, intimacy. I think that's a... Because th- that the point you make is spot on that, you know, when we look to one black person on the call, we expect that person to be the representative of an entirely massive group of, of, of people. But that also implies that black culture is a monolith, but it's terribly heterogeneous, right? Not all black people do anything. There's a dominant black culture for sure. But there are many, 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 many cultures inside of that. There's like the black church, right? There's black Greek life. There's, these, are all, these are all different communities that have their own set of conventions and expectations. Even in the quote unquote black church, there's Kojic, there's Baptist, there's Methodist. Like there are different ways by which people navigate their world through their cultural lenses. So the only way we understand that is to get intimate, to get close. And it requires us talking to people, being a part of the discourse to understand how they make meaning so that we might be able to connect with them through those mediated meaning frames. Right. So before we wrap up, I I just want to touch on the book a little bit more. Like when you started this conversation with For the Culture, what was the baseline for it? Was there a, a striking point where it was like you you put your pen to paper out of frustration for some things that you were noticing, or you just felt as though, you know, you're an educator, you're a professor as well. Like, was it because you felt as though, and that's why I was telling you, I started this podcast because there was a, a need for brand education to unpack the layers before you start investing in all the 
things that go into building a brand, right? What what was the, the in your mind, the striking point when you said, I got to get this book out? So it was twofold. It was a practical reason and later I would find it as a personal reason. Just like your pandemic pivot. I love the way you put that. Thank you. Like, I just saw everyone talking about culture. Let's get our ideas out in the culture, 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 culture. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, even to your point earlier, like, let's get into culture. I'm like, well, whose culture? What do you mean? And anytime you ask someone, you get the Homer Simpson blank stares. Like, it's like people like, I don't, I, I don't know. Then why are we saying it? And to your point, out of frustration, it's like, we need better language. And this is the academic in me. Like, we need language. If we have language, we can describe a thing and not only operationalize it, but to your earlier point, measure it. Fancy that. So I started writing with that in mind. Like, let's unpack culture, describe why it has this sway on us that it does, right. or the mechanisms that, that constitute it so that we can leverage those mechanisms. While I was writing, it was revealed there was a personal reason that I didn't know. It was lying dormant in right. me that as a Detroiter who did well in math and science, I studied engineering because that's what you're supposed to do. Those are the conventions and expectations, the social pressures that are put on me, even though I wasn't really aware of it. And I went to it accepting it. Yeah, this is what we do. Math and science, black, you go be an engineer. And I realized I didn't want to be an engineer. And my parents were like, no, you're going to be an engineer. And all I could say was that my parents are bugging. My parents are forcing me to do a thing I don't want to do because I didn't have the language to describe it. And because I didn't have the language, I, have, I didn't have much agency to do anything about it, to navigate it. And even as I think about it from like a metacognitive level, not only was I being pressured through these, these forces that we call culture, but my parents were also being pressured to what it means to be a good parent. The conventions and expectations that were pushed on them saying, no, your kid goes into music, you're setting them up for failure. Your job is to make sure that their, their future is solidified, their, 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 their future is promised. Push them to go into engineering, even if they don't like it. And they're doing that because that's what they think they're supposed to do. And they probably didn't have the language to describe it either. So the notion was that if we have better language, then we can navigate this socially phenomenal world that we live in. And as such, we'll be able to navigate the cultural expectations that are put on us so we can make better decisions and maybe even understand people better. And in some utopic perspective, maybe we'll just be a better society if we just understand people better. Not only better, better practitioners, but just, just better civilians. We'll be able to build better brands. <laughs> so just kind of to wrap it up, I always like to ask, what are your top three to five? I'm sure, you know, working at one of the top agencies, Wyden and Kennedy, you know, you get asked a lot of like deep thinking strategic questions for how brands can navigate the markets. So what would be your top three to five takeaways for someone looking to build a better brand with the culture in yeah. mind? So I'd say the first would be understanding that brand is a vessel of meaning, signifier that conjures up thoughts and feelings. So the question becomes, what do you want your brand to mean? Do you want it to mean a sharper razor? Do you want it to mean a faster car, or a bigger burger? That's, I suppose, satisfactory. But the strongest brands transcend value propositions and, and live at an ideological level. So the question becomes, what do you believe? What's your conviction? What do you want to stand on? And that's the meaning that you want your brand to be a shortcut for. Which leads to the second thing, what does your brand mean in the minds of people? Because those two things might not be analogous. You may want to mean this, but in people's minds, you actually mean that. And because you have that incongruence between the two, you try and talk to them, you might as well be talking to a wall because 
they don't see you that way. And the third becomes, okay, so I know that there's a delta among what I, what I want to mean and what I actually mean in the minds of people. Then we ask ourselves, well, for whom do we want to have this meaning? Who sees the world the way we do? That's our collective of the willing. That's our tribe. They subscribe to the same cultural characteristics and they're more inclined to move than anybody else. So we ask ourselves, how do we activate them based upon the cultural conventions and expectations that govern what people like them do? If you know who you are, and you know what you mean, the minds of people, and you know who those people are, it drastically increases your chances of getting people to move. And as marketers, that's our job, get people to adopt behavior. Wow, I use that word a lot, adapt. I mean, that's my biggest takeaway is like adaptation. Like for, for the culture, it's just like not putting it in a, in a bucket for all, a free-for-all. You know, it has to be interchangeable. You know, you have to create an ecosystem where you are a- easily able to adopt for whom you're talking to, when you're talking to them, and what they need in that moment. Like you gave the Bruce Wayne analogy. He's the same person foundationally, but he knows how to change his tone or his outfit or his purpose within that moment That's right. based on who he's serving and who right. he's showing up for. And he's still the same. Like he's, st- he's still Batman. Bruce Wayne is still Batman. And Batman is still Bruce Wayne, right? But he operates in different contexts based on the needs that are, that are there. And to your point, you know, we adapt to the surroundings that we're in and we do so to get people to adopt the behaviors that we set out for them. Exactly. To, to exactly. That's strategy. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what, I mean, that's a lot of people, that's another word. A lot of people don't fully understand strategy and it's, it's really what you just broke down is getting people to understand, taking them through an ecosystem of understanding, you know, what it is that you need them to do to get to where it is that they're trying to go. So I, that's, that's brilliant, man. You, you're a brilliant brother. And I, I really appreciate your time today. And this has just been amazing. And My just absolute pleasure. Talk through the book and just, I mean, there's still so much that we didn't unpack. <laughs> I got to have you back, man. Don't do it. I'm here you know? for it. So, as long as we keep this view, I'm, yeah, I'm, this I'm here is, for it. I mean, look, <laughs> don't get no better than this, y'all. Absolutely. So you want to say any final words? Thank you so very much for spending time with us. I hope you uh, get a copy of For the Culture. And I hope it's as helpful for you as it was for me writing it. My brother. Thank you. That was Dr. Marcus Collins, award-winning marketer, cultural translator, and former head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, joining us here today on Building a Better Brand to discuss his new best-selling book, For the Culture, as well as unpack his extraordinary career in advertising as an executive working with some of today's most sought-after companies. What I loved about this episode was how Marcus so openly and candidly shared his branding experiences and how he's led so many companies to impact, but also how technical he is when it comes to examining the influence of culture on consumption and unpacks his work so brilliantly to share how everyone from marketers to activists can leverage culture to get people to take action. Be sure to follow Dr. Marcus across all of his social channels at Mark to the C with a C, which I'll of course have links to in our show notes. I know I've learned a lot and it's very much motivated me on my own entrepreneurial journey as we all continue to build together, connect and thrive as we grow in this ever-changing world of brand building in this world of building better brands. Follow us on Instagram, and across all social media platforms at Building a Better Brand. Follow me, your host, Tony Triumph, on Instagram. I'm at Tony Triumph Official. I'm also on LinkedIn, 
and Twitter if you want to drop me a line. I'm trying to get more active on those platforms. Or, you know, if you have any brand related questions, requests, or even feedback about this podcast, feel free to hit me up at info at buildingabetterbrand.com. Till next time, y'all.